Well, well, first off, you mentioned the Phantom of the Opera thing, <laughs> and I know exactly the production you're talking about. <laughs> um, but you mentioned that as like the first thing that rang your bell, and that phrase that you used rang something in me, which is that my experience of the first thing that rang my bell and made me aware of different things and desires was a scene when I was um, I, I, I was watching. I was like nine years old, and I was watching Men in Black too. <laughs> There's a scene in where the villain is just a woman filled with tentacles. She goes up to Hello everybody, I'm Pax and this is Brotakus, the show where we do a deep dive on what is and isn't worth watching. We believe you don't need a major in anime studies to enjoy this wild, beautiful, strange art form and we are so lucky to have you on this journey with us. Hal is out this week trying to gather the seven dragon orbs that have been scattered throughout the earth so he could bring Goku back from the dead. Check his Twitter for updates, it is getting pretty rough out there in the six. Uh, our guest today, we are so excited to have her on, Anne Ishii. Anne Ishii is a Philadelphia-based writer, translator, and producer, but that does not even begin to cover all that she's done. She co-founded Massive Goods with Graham Colbeans. Am I saying that correct? Yeah. Colbeans? Yeah. Such a cool last name. It's like cool beans. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, as well as working with him as a co-producer on the groundbreaking documentary Queer Japan, which is so good. Please watch Queer Japan. She currently serves as the executive director of the Asian Arts Initiative in Philadelphia. You can find her on anishi.com, on Twitter at at ill underscore iterate. Great handle. Such a good handle. And Anne, did I see that you have a Substack as well? Yeah, I do. Are we keeping that on the DM? No, no, no. People can go there. I um, I just edited it down because it felt a little a lot. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. But no, so please check, check out the... it out. I review books and movies and things on it. So yeah. Awesome. Check out Anne's newly edited down <laughs> Substack. And if they just Google Annie, she's Substack. Will they find it? Yeah. A-M-I-S-H-I-I dot Substack dot com. Okay, nice, nice, nice. Well, that wasn't a very professional intro because I'm asking you questions during the hey, intro. But it's okay. Anne, thank you so much <laughs> for coming on today. <laughs> um, as for uh, normally Brotaku's news corner, we talk about news at the start of the show. No news this week. There is Bye. no news uh, other than if this episode is coming out after our Demon Slayer Mugen train review, we are not going to apologize for saying what we said. Your death threats mean nothing to us. They are sloughing off our back like rainwater. I do not care. I don't care. Wow. <laughs> um, Wow, courage, courage. Yes, and have you seen Demon Slayer at all? Is this a familiar thing to you? You know, I was actually going to say, you should know about me that um, despite my very, very specific and deep knowledge of some aspects of manga and anime, the rest is completely, I mean, you could be talking about the moons of Saturn. I just... <laughs> <laughs> I, t I totally get it. I totally get it. Um, the new Demon Slayer movie just broke the uh, uh, box office title previously held by Spirited Away. Oh. So it's making a lot of headlines. Whoa. But it doesn't function as a movie. Oh. It's not a functional script. That makes me want to <laughs> watch it. I know, right? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, Anne, there is so much to cover with you regarding just uh, your story getting into this. I had first heard of you when I was a... Uh, young gender studies major who was also into the most um, 
depraved uh, 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 manga, as, as is most, as is is often the origin story of a gender studies major. <laughs> you discover the pornography first, but um, a book that we were actually asked to read was your translation of My Brother's Husband mm. by um, uh, Gengoro Takame. Yeah, Gengoro Takame. Yes, and that sent me down this whole kind of uh, pun intended yes. <laughs> of oh. of researching all of his work and then in the same vein all of your work and what you were doing and then later your work with massive goods but i think that what you have um done to get from point a to point b is so fascinating that i kind of want to start with your origin story so to say which shocked me because you studied french for years mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. can you describe what what got you into that in that phase of your life before heading into the kind of like um manga sphere in the publishing world okay so as a kid i think like a lot of girls and i really am using that word very deliberately and this whole notion of like what would be romantic in my life and mm. it was just really important to me that like my life was filled with romance and i use that word a lot like <laughs> to a really kind of hideously embarrassing level of just like there always needs to be romance in my life. And I was so tortured and my favorite mm -hmm. things were all about unrequited love. And I realized that not to get like too deep into this, but it had to do with God. And I don't want to get into that now, but Ooh. it was definitely okay. just this like, you're supposed to be in love with something you can't see. Right. So that sort of seduction was always on my mind. And that's, that's literally been the through line my entire life is just like a seduction. Just what can't I see? What mm. can't I achieve? What's the pinnacle? What can't I touch? And I'm, this is all important. So, it, you know, in high school, going into college, I actually wanted to be a music major. And that's what I started with. Mm. I had like a music scholarship and I was like ready to go into that. And for a lot of reasons, just really, really sad reasons, I, I dropped it all. And so just mm -hmm. one day I put everything away and I was like, I'm never doing this again. And French was the next thing that I had done that was extremely difficult and that I mastered and did so well that I was like, that's the thing that I want to do. Now, simultaneously, I am also studying Japanese and I continue to read in Japanese. And so my degree is technically in French literature, but my dissertation, not my dissertation, what do you call it in high school, but my BA, my graduating paper mm. was actually a translation of a Japanese book. So the first thing I did was actually translate from Japanese to English, but it was the French language and the French culture that I wanted to be immersed in. It just felt a lot less um, tenable. So mm. beginning of the Annie she experience was like, what's the most romantic, most difficult, most challenging, most musical thing I can do that's not the things, you know, the, the, the more obvious things, right? Right, um, right? And it was to go to France and teach English, which was the first job I was offered out of college. I hated it in France. I hated it oh, no. so much. <laughs> Why? What happened? What happened in France? I mean, I was there for like a couple years and I had a boyfriend and I got really involved in the local music scene. And it was like, mm -hmm. you know, so on the surface of it, great. I hated the food. <laughs> I hated, I hated how everybody treated me for not being, you know, not looking like them. It was just, it was very mm -hmm. isolating and I felt very, um, I, it's so out of place. I was just like so massively mm. out of place. And all of the things that I thought were romantic were just indicators of like, I mean, 
dickish asshole sort of kind of name it right like just very <laughs> patriarchal <laughs> very chauvinistic and um not not cool and i realized oh this isn't this isn't romantic um it wasn't even sexually liberated like which would have made it actually really interesting right and so at that point i realized oh you know what like i really need to be honest with myself i want to be working in japanese language so mm. then I applied to a master's program at Columbia in New York, showed up to New York City two weeks before 9-11, <laughs> and oh for the gosh. first time in my life, had no idea what the World Trade Center was, and then it exploded in my face. That whole first year, mm. I was covered in hives from head to toe. Just It was like such an awful experience. But that was romantic. I, I hate, I mean, not to like... <laughs> not to be I, cute I understand about it, what you're it was saying. just sort of yeah. like, oh my God, I'm doing this, and... Oh my God, New York in the early aughts. Um, I know diehard New Yorkers would be like, ah, it was Disneyland, Giuliani, but I loved it. It was, oh my mm. God, like that was the challenge. That was the romance. That was the music. That was the thing that I wanted. And it was also extremely lucrative. I was extremely fortunate to have graduated from grad school with a job in the publishing industry at a, at a, at a, press that specialized in Japanese to English translations, vertical. So vertical press, uh, now part of Kodansha, but um, I was their, I was their first director of marketing and publicity. And that's where I learned everything about publishing. Um, I feel like the rest is history because that's also when I was first introduced to gay manga and it was just an immediate connection. And it was Tagame's work that was first introduced to me. I mean, he is, he is the god of you know gay erotica, yeah. and um, because I'm insane, I wrote to him through um, at the prompting of a couple friends, Graham and the book designer Chip Kid, who were like, "What's up with this work? Like, let's see it in America. Why isn't it? Mm. Why hasn't it been translated?" And we kept waiting for somebody to do it, and I was like, "I'm just going to write him." And surprisingly, he had like you know, an email address on his contact form on some like dinky website. And at the time for my day job, I was going to Japan at least twice a year. So on one of my trips, I was just like, hi, um, I'd really love to meet you and just like talk about the opportunity to translate you into English and just instant love connection. So yeah. And everything else kind of happened after that. That is, that is so fascinating, and you just you just mentioned a few things there that I think bring up some more. I, I guess to 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 use the phrase spiritual or philosophical points. I'm curious in this era of your life, the 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 phrase romance keeps coming up. What what does romantic mean to you? I guess now to you on that level, like what does that what does that capture to you? What was that feeling that you felt like you were chasing for all those years? Oh, it's the chase. Oh my God, you said the word chase, and that's like. Oh, um, every, you know, (laughs) I'm going to say something so embarrassing, but like the first, the first piece of like cultural content that really just like rang my bell was Mm -hmm. not the musical Phantom of the Opera, but, (laughs) (laughs) oh my God, okay, go on. But, um, like some corny network TV adaptation of the musical into like a two hour, two day miniseries. I, you, I, my, I just was like, 
this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. I might have been maybe 11 or 12 when I watched it. But to me, the romance of it was that there was this guy hiding in an opera house wearing a mask <laughs> who was controlling <laughs> the career of this like ingenue who had no idea how talented she was. And that was my dream. I was like, mm -hmm. I want somebody... I want the Phantom of the Opera to find me and make it possible for me to be like a musical god, right? And one of my favorite um, quotes, actually, I'm, everything I'm saying is a little bit embarrassing, but I'm going to try to own all of it because it really is the core of like what drives my craft work. Um, Frederick Lacan says, love is giving mm -hmm. what you don't have to somebody who doesn't want it. And right. that kills me. So like these stories where just there's the tension and there's an untouchability and the sort of the distance keeps getting halved, but you never touch like all of that mm. tension is so beautiful. And I think that's also why porn and erotica are really fascinating to me because it's this never ending. It's it. You can never be satisfied. It's just like a, it's an endless font of, all of the experiences and yes. for a person to really dedicate themselves to that work, you know, cause I think we believe that the orgasm is it, right. Or like you, mm -hmm. it's like penetration and then you're done. But as we know now as queer folks, that's absolutely not the case. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so that's, what's really exciting to me is the, the idea that like we can reach this feeling without, with either too much or too little or not enough or, you know, that I don't know. I don't know how to say it. It's just um, that that makes everything else that we do to sustain ourselves and survive all the more exciting because everything else we do, quite frankly, is boring, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it's why um, queer erotica, but also just producing erotica in general can be so difficult because oftentimes if, if if you're only servicing a base level of just like create sexy images make the things that make you want to come mm -hmm. you're just feeding into the um i guess ephemeral side mm -hmm. of this but there is a deeper hungering sort of like yes. sometimes hollowing desire that can just gut you out and work on a lot of deeper levels yes. and i think that when we have material that's at its best it's kind of oh operating my god those that's things. exactly exactly it and it's i I think that that you just said something really interesting, but it isn't the it's that hollowing out, right? Um, yeah. And that's why I'm so excited by people who can't get enough, you know. Mm. And that's either in a specialization or in just like this like raging hunger. And I think that's also some that, that's also romance, right? Because you keep pushing the the bottom of the well, you know. Yeah, yeah, I. Well, first off, you mentioned the Phantom of the Opera thing, <laughs> and I know exactly the production you're talking about, <laughs> um, but you mentioned that as like the first thing that rang your bell, and that phrase that you used rang something in me, which is that my experience of the first thing that rang my bell and made me aware of different things and desires was a scene when I was, um, I, I, I was watching, I was like nine years old, and I was watching Men in Black 2. <laughs> 
there's there's a scene in where the villain who's just a woman filled with tentacles. She goes up to I know, I know. She goes up to Agent Smith, and to read his mind, like puts her tongue in his ear, and it looks like it goes in like forty feet and turns into a fucking cobra. And that was what rang my bell. So you're allowed to have your thing because that was mine. Oh my god. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's so good. Oh, my God. And now here I am talking about hentai on an anime podcast. Dude. So self-fulfilling <laughs> prophecy. <laughs> oh, God. I think I just want to say to you, just like, thank you for sharing yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I mean, and tentacle porn has gotten a bad rap. It's kind of unfortunate because, I mean, why not? And it's... um. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's, haven't you oh, seen God. my octopus, Fred? Why not? I mean, it's like, you know, um, I think, too, just like aggressive, ag- aggressive porn and aggressive sexuality have never scared me, right? And I used to think that that... I mean, I, I think a lot of group people can empathize with this. Mm-hmm. Just that sort of like, oh, is this? You can you can have a really accepting family and be surrounded by people who who kind of generally encourage discovery, self discovery, and it'll still feel a little off. But I mean, you know, it's it's also just sort of owning that. And um, what's a little bit weird might be the person who takes that for granted. So like, mm. I kind of enjoy the fact that it is titillating and that we I can't take my eyes away from it but also that at the same time i'm like i probably should back off <laughs> i probably yeah. shouldn't be talking about this you know all the time <laughs> yeah <laughs> i totally get that um i i i've i've read you talking about making the shift into producing um and translating actively as kind of a example of you know standing at a crossroads and showing a type of drive and temerity and c- can you kind of describe the the moment that you realized, okay, wait, maybe it's not an inevitability that somebody else is going to do this and get into this field. Maybe I need to be the one. Yeah. So something Tagama says about gay erotica that I really love is that it suffers no pretenders. You can't be into Mm. it if you don't like it. Like you can't pretend to like gay porn if you don't like it. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. So, and I think that's something you know, even in my current job where I work with a lot of Asian American artists are struggling with how to negotiate identity. So as not to mm-hmm. sound corny or narcissistic, it's really hard to accept. Like I'm, I'm doing this because I enjoy it. I know it sounds yeah. intuitive. Like, of course you want to do the things you enjoy and love your job and all that, but it's, it's a little bit different. I guess it's, um, I've met so many gay artists who can't not create gay content they can't not do it right so that's (laughs) the stuff i'm interested in is what's the what's the thing you can't not do right Mm. and i think that's that's the thing in publishing where and finally publishers are recognizing like oh maybe maybe that's what we need to respond to right is like what what needs to be said that what's going to happen anyway and how do we how do we support it um because otherwise, it's like, like I mean, everything else is really boring. Um, I, I want to know what's touching everybody. So I think that's when I realized, too, just waiting for somebody to translate Tagame, 
I just thought there must be so many other people who are having that same reaction to his work. Mm. And so, you know, what's stopping us from, you know, bringing it over and, and, you know, to be quite honest, I think it was a right time, right place, right person situation because I'm somebody who was already translating Japanese to English, somebody who was already enjoying his work and somebody who has the, who had the means to get in touch with them. Right. So we're bringing up, um, we're bringing up Gengaro Tatame a lot. Um, and I feel like for the, for the audience, I think plenty of people probably still aren't familiar with his work. Could you kind of describe some of the, the markers of his yeah. style? So, um, He's been described a lot as like the Japanese Tom of Finland, and I don't think that's inaccurate. Mm. He's like one of the first um, commercially viable published gay erotic artists, and he's an illustrator. So he has done a lot of what I guess we'd call like pinup illustrations of like right. you know sexualized men. But he's also the first uh, Japanese artist to dis- depict Japanese men as like hairy and big. And um, big, I mean, I, like, I think something you'd said previously was breaking out of the twink mold. Yeah, breaking, yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, and I think that, you know the audience in Japan at least had this moment of discovery with him, which was, oh, this is hot, you know, because yeah. I think there was this assumption it was just like a gender binary, and so if you were a receiver, you were also a feminine. Uh, feminine um or feminized somehow but you know there's nothing i mean there's there's a lot of brutality and a lot of subjugation but there's there's nary a feminization of anybody even mm. the female bodies in tagame's work right so it is a hundred percent just like butch i don't know what else to call it um so that's his style and he's Known initially for having been the founding editor of a magazine called G-Men, and G mm. actually stands for Gangoro, so it's Gangoro's Men, and um, nice. a really important magazine, not just because it was showcasing gay art and gay literature and gay culture, because there were actually several magazines that did that, but um, it, it again, it just kind of challenged the the depiction of masculinity and this was you know in, in a japan and because i don't think even in the u.s magazine culture was ever this robust but um these were publications that were the only means for gay men to find each other so th- mm-hmm. this is how a lot of people met and found out about like places safe places to go you know um I'm really kind of sad that that whole ecosystem is pretty much gone. Like G-Men has closed. Um, all of the major gay magazines in Japan are either done or, you know, digital only. So, um, right. He, and he's, oh my gosh, I should know this off the top of my head. I've, he's probably written something like, I don't know, 50 or 60 full length gay erotic graphic novels. And, um, that in itself is an amazing feat. He's the only gay manga artist, I think, even today, who does this full time and absolutely nothing else, mm. which is also something, right? I think even American cartoonists will understand the sort of um, how amazing that is, right? To support yourself on yeah. just comics. And, and, and original works, too. So not just 
being a, a Twitter artist who right, has right, right. to exactly. like, hawk off like furry porn commissions exactly. to make a yeah. living, you know? Um, um, exactly, original work. Your, your centering of masculinity is something that I had completely not considered as like a defining trait specifically of like the pornography or, or maybe I should be focusing in on the lack of feminization because mm -hmm. even if there is bondage you're totally right that it is always a, a, a sort of masculine subjugation without diving into some of the other tropes that you'll see in there are so many um, doujinshi and uh, 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 pieces of work that dive into feminization or you know the whole funari genre things that mm -hmm. really um, have oftentimes in, in the, the concept of the trap like really problematic boundaries yeah. relating to gender and then getting and that's without even diving into kind of like Shotokan and right, right. strange right. age um, issues there but to service such a market with these big um, thick chunky yeah. boys <laughs> like it's something where you you're a hundred percent right that you can that there are no pretenders in this because everybody that I've shown um, uh, my brother's husband to they they either have a reaction to the art where they go I don't know. I don't know how I feel about the art. That that's kind of it. It doesn't look good to me. You know, I don't get how that's how that's sexy. Mm -hmm. Or they have a response that goes like, "Holy yeah, shit! Right. <laughs> Holy shit!" Like because if you know, you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but but touching on this seminal work of of my brother's husband, which became, I think, uh, what it it won awards here in the oh, West yeah. as it broke through. Yeah, right? it's um, yeah, it's won several. Um, I'm, oh my god, I'm drawing a complete blank. I feel terrible because I, I do consider each award an honor, but I can't remember. Um, it's just that you've won so many of I them. Know, I'm it's sure. just my trophy well, shelf is falling over my head. Um, well, well, to fill in, Monsieur Wikipedia <laughs> informs me that it's won the Eisner Award for Best U.S. Edition yes. of International Material, uh, Japan Media Arts Award, and the Japan Cartoonists Association Award. Yes. Um, and a bunch of but library so, awards and um yeah, yeah it's, it's really great and i should just know for anybody who doesn't already know this is an all ages book so it's not gay porn and i think mm. that's kind of exciting too that this is a person who's been able been able to add ya to his you know um toolbox like somebody who's done easily the most violent and most challenging most um you know, transgressive porn <laughs> has also created one of the most heartwarming stories appropriate for all ages. And the fact that he did this simultaneously yes. too was amazing. I think there's a moment in Queer Japan where he talks about like, I was co-creating my uh, brother's husband along with, uh, you know, uh, Space Tentacle yeah, yeah, Bondage yeah, yeah. Rope Adventure 97. <laughs> and he said... I think doing so was really good for my mental health to be able to balance out both sides of that. Yeah. And that was remarkable to me. And I think that that is just a, a great slice of human nature there. But um, I think that I, I've brought up my brother's husband again and again on this because it's, it's, it's a, a piece of work I love so much. Can you kind of give the audience just a sense of what was it that drew you to this work and, and what it was about? Yeah. This, this first work. Yeah. Well, um, you know, the short of it is that as I, I continue to serve as his North American agent and his full-time translator. So mm. it was just a matter of he was doing it, and I was like, I absolutely need to work on this. <laughs> like, if you do an English edition, I have to be in it. And mm. um, 
you know, I want to just add that, like, Tagame and I at this point are, like, buddies. I mean, he, I, I think of him as almost just, like, uh, I don't want to, I don't know, like, brother or uncle or something like that, you know? And yeah. so it is very much me just being, like, hey, I'm doing this, right, you know? Um, so there was no decision in that sense. But I think the bigger one, the bigger decision was, do we think we can get away with getting this published by a major publisher who won't touch our porn, which is right. which is what happened. So like Pantheon, which is an imprint of Knopf, which is part of Penguin Random House, like they don't do they don't do porn, but they did pick up my brother's husband. So that was really exciting. Mm. And um I think as far as what drew me to it or what what touches me about it, um the most interesting aspect of the story I actually think isn't the the it's about um coming to terms of like gay identity in a con- and not in a, I'm not going to say conservative, but in a, in a culture that doesn't really quite understand what coming out culture is like, or, you know, yeah. um, living your full life or whatever. But it's actually the fact that the, the main character, the father is a stay at home dad. Like, and I think that's, that's really transgressive. Like a, Ooh, like a Japanese yeah, graphic a novel manga about a dad who wears an apron all day and takes care of his daughter by himself. And it's the wife, the mother, who has left because she wanted to pursue a career and, um, and they still get along. They're divorced, but they still get along really well. You know, these are things that you do not see in family stories, right? Like it's a very Mm -hmm. non-traditional household. And, and so the, the broad, like inciting incident of my brother's husband, could you uh, give that to the audience of kind of like what the, the broad plot is about? So the main character's, twin brother um who left japan when he came out because he didn't feel fully accepted moved to canada and married a guy named mike a white guy named mike uh the the twin brother then dies and then the widower mike comes to japan to pay his respects and meets the twin brother for the first time yaichi the father and um and then it's this like tension between them as yaichi's like Oh my god, what's this gay white man doing in my house? Like, I don't want anything to do with this. Also, I'm totally cool with the fact that my brother was gay. And then he realizes, oh wait, I guess I really wasn't because yeah, yeah. we became estranged and I don't really appreciate this dude. Um, and then the daughter kind of sort of triangulates their relationship by being like, hey, my family. Yeah, and it's so heartwarming. This actually came up the first time because we uh, a repeat guest of ours is a um, actor friend of ours named Mike Flanagan, uh, who is not a gigantic fuzzy bear like the Mike Flanagan of this novel. He is he's more like an otter, but his only hair is on his like mustache. Oh. So I think I've called him a naked mole rat in the past. <laughs> <laughs> but um, <laughs> I pointed him in this direction after I. Uh, have you seen the live action adaptation of this? Uh, a little bit. Um. I, I should. I've seen a little bit of it. Well, it's very, it's very interesting because the guy who plays Mike Flanagan is like a six foot yes. eight uh, Estonian sumo wrestler. Yes. Um, and it leads to this very strange thing where even though he's like the perfect fit for this, and I actually thought it was like watching this, I was having a really hard week. It made me so emotional mm-hmm. that it like rebooted me and I felt alive again just watching it. it I thought it was really well done. Um, but it leads to scenes where it's like flashbacks with uh, Ryoji and um, Mike Flanagan is there like on their wedding day and talking about things. And um, Ryoji is a, uh, played by the same actor plays both twin Mm -hmm. brothers. Um, Really great Japanese actor who 
just speaks more fluent English than the giant Estonian wrestler <laughs> does. And so there's moments where they're back um, in the West. They're like, whatever, uh, we're in uh, Canada now. And uh, Ryoji's like, we need to go see my brother back in Japan. <laughs> and Mike Flanagan is just like, yes, on the day of my wedding, we should go back and I will take you to Japan. I was like, oh, no. hell yeah. Hell yeah, this rocks. <laughs> this rocks. <laughs> I didn't know that. Uh, oh my god. <laughs> it's totally great. I, I don't think that a ton of Japanese audiences would like really nail that that's an issue <laughs> what's happening there, but it's really funny. Um, oh, poor gosh. Boruto. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, um, he's he's uh, he's a politician now, though. He like ran for office in Estonia. He's like a a a sitting politician in Estonia. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I yeah. hope I don't know his politics, but I don't know. Me too. Yeah. But like, how can you be the lead in like a in like an interracial gay like TV series? <laughs> But I've known weirder people. Yeah, I know, yeah, I, mean, I know. I mean, there's Caitlyn Jenner. Yeah, well, is running for yeah, governor. Like, well, let's, you know, not all skinfolk yeah. or kinfolk or whatever. <laughs> so we haven't done a ton of research, but pseudo shout out to Boruto, yeah. great sumo wrestler. Um, <laughs> Good luck. So <laughs> I kind of want to move a little forward in your career. Um, can you tell us a bit about uh, Massive Goods yeah. with uh, you and Graham starting it? Because the... When I discovered it, I became furious that it seems like not everything is like currently in stock because these are some really hot uh, items yeah, available in massive goods. But <clears throat> what was kind of the 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 spark in starting this? Uh, I guess imprint or, yeah. or label or outfit with Graham. Um. So I, Graham and I were working on two books, and he, he's a filmmaker, and I was mm -hmm. in publishing. But both of us really knew. Um, you know, we're we're both also just like byproducts of you know pop culture right and yeah. when we were preparing our book proposals um i think we were i i was sort of like i don't want to waste my time on this if it's not going to pay me correctly or you know mm -hmm. like if it's if it's not successful so when graham first approached me he said he just wanted me to translate some interviews for a magazine for butt magazine actually and I was like, that's definitely not going to be worth my time. <laughs> They're definitely not. Magazine, What's that? Did you say butt magazine? Mm -hmm. B-U-T-T, butt magazine. There's a butt magazine? What? You don't know butt magazine? Come on. No, what's butt magazine? Oh, my Lord. Um, but, okay. Well, you're going to have to Google that while I tell this story. I already Wow. <laughs> <laughs> butt magazine uh, dude in case you want to include it in the video here is some butt magazine yeah. my god my god yes so you know i was like this just this needs to be a little bit more lucrative than just i'm gonna work my tail off to translate an important interview for one magazine right so mm -hmm. um we were going to tcaf toronto comics arts festival which oh i miss it so much and um mm. this is i guess in 2012 or 13 um, I said, let's, let's, you know, debut the book, The Passion of Tagame, which we both worked on with Chip Kid and Tagame, of course, um, out of Picture Box Books, R.I.P. And um, I was like, I asked the publisher, Dan, I'm like, would you care if we brought merchandise to sell alongside the book? And so we designed this T-shirt and that was the first thing we did. And it just flew off like hotcakes and then suddenly everybody wanted one and we were like awesome like there's a market for this right and i really credit graham for uh for designing really awesome 
t-shirts at that point. Um, then it, oh, Graham designed them. Graham designed them. Yeah, I mean the artworks obviously Tartamus, but Graham Graham's the one who came up with the idea of like um, like a full print from like a weird angle. Yeah. And um, we we were like the shirts are doing so well. It's definitely going to do better than the royalties on this book. And mm. then we were like, let's do some more artwork and work with other artists. And then then the best coupled sweatshirt happened, and that was that was the big. That was the big change. So this is... Is that the two, uh, one guy's facing each yeah, other? Yeah, it's the two dudes facing each other like they're nice. about to fuck or fight. You can't tell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, that was Jiraiya, the artist Jiraiya. And um, we just, the prompt we gave him was just like, can you do, can you depict a, a massive gay couple? I think that's all he said. And then that's mm. what he did. So um, we printed that. And at the time, Graham was working on the movie Her, the Spike Jones film, as a oh, like wow. on the back end, not not like you know he whatever like some lowly Hollywood job for that. Actually, I think he was their blogger. Anyway, long story short, um, that that's that was our introduction to opening ceremony because they outfitted the the movie and they said, "Oh my God, this sweatshirt is dope! We want to carry it." And then it turned into. This sweatshirt is so dope, we want to do a whole capsule collection. And then that mm. capsule collection, we were told later, did it, that capsule collection did better in sales that summer than anything they'd done before. <laughs> and that wow. it lifted sales overall in their stores. Like, it was just some, like, bananas statistic. Like, this is so popular, we need to do it again. And we did it, even though we're not fashion designers, and it went. It did do really well. And in between the collections, we did other sort of one-off items. And each thing, just we were so delighted at how well it sold and how popular it was, and people really, you know, it really spoke to people. Um, it It's so hard to produce clothing. I don't know why people do it. It's so fucking hard. Mm, so sure, logistically. Oh God. I mean, because it's if if it's if it's done well, it takes a long time. And even if it's not done that well, or or even if it's done extraordinarily well, you're at the mercy of like factories in Asia, which right, is, sure. I have to say, it's like a lot less savory than you even think. Like, it's sort of like, uh oh, <laughs> I don't mm. know if this should be five dollars. <laughs> it should be like, <laughs> you know. And so we then we were like, we need to we need to focus our production in in the U.S. Like, mm. I don't want to sound moralizing, but it just didn't feel good. So then it's <laughs> yeah, I think that's fine to it, say, right? Like, it was sort of like, yeah. oh, I don't know about these sweatshops. It's kind of I don't know. Do you think that do you think the massive could be like due for a uh, a restock sometime in the future, or is this kind of like a, on pause right now? I would love to get back into it, but it would honestly require somebody with the appetite for clothing production mm. to focus the time on this, and it would be an investment. Like I'm not about to payroll, uh, like a fashion line. Um, right. You know, yeah, and yeah. Graham and I went into this sort of both. We both went into it knowing the risks, and we assumed them personally, and so it was fine. Mm. But I don't know anybody right now who'd be like, yeah, I'm willing to put my life on hold and just do this, you know? Right, I mean, yeah. it paid off so, for us, but it would be, that would be the risk somebody would have to take. 
Totally. So if any of our listeners are into like streetwear, um, if you want to throw some money at Ann and Graham, get your hands in this. There's potential here. This is a fantastic um, label and the capsule collection was absolutely fire. Um, Check it out at Massive uh, Massive dash hyphen good dash or (laughs) massive dash goods.com and uh check it out because there's some fantastic stuff going on um and the amount of hats that you've um worn now as executive director of the asian arts institute in philadelphia and writer translator producer or sorry did i did i say that wrong it's totally cool because i'd love to be an institute but we're the asian arts initiative and i only make that initiative i'm sorry i'm so sorry no no, it's cool it's just because um it's the more natural sounding word after Asian arts, but Institute mm-hmm. is like, um, I don't, I don't know if there is an Asian arts Institute. There must be, but, um, just, just to make the distinction, cause I think a lot of people think we appraise Asian art, <laughs> which is what oh, it sounds like we do, but that's not what it is. But yeah. So, so talking about what, what you do do and some of the, <laughs> that it's so weird this is i might cut this this brings me back um something you said during one of the presentations i was watching for pre-work was um describing your work in translating some of um Gengaro Tatame's uh work and trying to take care of yourself while doing it something you said was it's really hard to eat food while uh and watch someone eat poo yeah <laughs> like, I think, which is like, <laughs> just took a deep chord inside me but um <laughs> So the Asian Arts Initiative, I know that you you hold um, uh, gallery exhibits and have different ways of working with youth, but what would you say is the main goal of the initiative and and how do you kind of put that into practice in Philly? Uh, Our stated mission is to create community through the power of art. My mission is to see more brave art made by Asians in Philadelphia. So it is just right now, you know, we are a site, we're a place, like most people know us as the big building in North Chinatown. And you'd come here to see like the Philly Asian American Film Festival or like various dance performances and the Philly Asian performing artists. And a lot of a lot of events take place here, whether we've designed and produced them or others. But um, I think for me coming in, it's really just like there's there's an entire narrative around Asians in America that kind of gets lost when you leave New York and Los Angeles and even San Francisco. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I actually really believe that the people who make commitments to work in spaces where you can only work, again, it goes back to like, what's the thing that you can't not do? But there's so yeah. many, you're, you, you aren't in Philadelphia because you have, you, you might not need to do it. You do it because you need to. <laughs> Nobody right. here is not doing what they can't not do, if that makes sense. So I think that is, this is one of the bravest spaces I've, actually worked in and i just want more i just want more 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 of you have to come here i want you know i think the asian population here is something like seven percent i want it to be like 13 percent by the time i'm done nice oh yeah we could let's get those numbers up listeners move to philadelphia yeah. move to philadelphia <laughs> um you, you you keep bringing this up um the i guess the love of um seeing somebody who is possessed Mm -hmm. by something that they must do something that just takes them and drives them i'm curious do you feel like there is a there is something for you that you must do or is your infatuation with this something where it's almost like well i i wish i that there was one thing that i felt that drive about how how do you feel like that manifests oh my god oh my god that's it's for me the eternal 
I mean, this is the conversation I have with my therapist every week. It's like, you know, I think like a lot of generalists, I am a generalist. I wish I was a specialist. And like, I'm, I, I'm also trying to own that I'm good at being a generalist. But, you know, I mentioned like in, in my childhood and in my, my younger days, I really thought it was music. And then, and then just, you know, when horrible things happen, you just put things away. But the writing writing to me now feels like the most important thing I have to be doing. I, if I'm not writing, I become really moribund and just, you know, mm. just dispossessed. And I think the challenge in my, I'm a little bit older. So, you know, as you get to the, uh, an age where you have to start really settling in it is sort of what's my, how do I define my success? And yeah. in my twenties and thirties, it was, I need to be published. And now that, now it can't be that because mm. it just can't like, and now it has to be, I have to, I just have to have a practice of doing something. So as long as I'm writing and honestly, it, I kind of liked the, I like the fact that what I make is not particularly good <laughs> in the worse it is. That's it's sort of like, okay, now I have to get better at it. So, you know, but I, I'm dying to be the person that is like, I've always wanted to be the person on the stage and I've always wanted to be, mm. you know, um, the soloist or the, what I mean, you know, I wanted to be the, the thing. Um, and I was actually just having this conversation with a colleague, but um, a lot of the work that we do, and I mean labor, is to survive, Right. And yeah. a lot of the work that we do as people of color is passing to survive. It's just what do I get away with and how do I how do I get to the place where I can be my most sincere and unapologetic self, but also not get killed or not get ostracized or not be right not be exoticized, right? And at this point I feel like I've I've been passing as a leader and a public figure, which feel like really important jobs, but actually that's also taking away from my real desire, which is not, not to lead, but to create. Right. So I'm giving you a really esoteric answer, but I guess it's sort of that you just kind of hit something that's really big for me, which is how do I do, how do I, how do I do myself justice as a creator? And then also just own the fact that I happen to be really fucking good at my job. And I'm yeah. the job that I'm really good at is leading and organizing and, you know, like all this administrative boring, boring work. <laughs> right. Oh man. And you're hitting really on so many fucking good at that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So balancing this desire to, have eyes on you or to be the the soloist do, are, are you expressing that you feel gosh i'm sorry this is just something I've, I've grappled with a lot as well so um going to a going to a theater school mm -hmm. actually mm -hmm. um oh i, went, I bet I went to you must have felt that but in spades i mean well, I so it's, it's complicated i went i went to suny fredonia mm. which is like it's it's like the the in terms of like if if you want to go to a state a SUNY school for theater, it's like the best among them. Yeah. But um, I was a triple major in acting, English, and women's and gender studies, mm. so I was busting my buns there. And a question I was constantly presented with is: doing all of these different things 
wh- what when I'm doing it makes me feel like I'm my truest self. Mm-hmm. You know, because you used the word pretending a little while mm-hmm, ago. Mm-hmm. And I think so much of, especially now that you are the, you're the executive director of a, like, influential arts initiative in what the fifth largest city in the country right (laughs) like that's a huge position of power but still having this sense of i i won't you know put words in your mouth and call it any type of like imposter syndrome but the sense that maybe what you are best at doing is not what feels most like naturally nurturing or aligned with your interest Do, do you have any lessons for me for how you've like grappled with that or is it still a process of of trying to figure out you know what's working best for you i'm gonna poorly paraphrase and quote alexander chi the writer who talks uh-huh. he has this really beautiful uh, piece about um writer's block and why writers prevent themselves from succeeding or writing or whatever success is, right. right and um the question he asks is who are you afraid of letting down and so that that's the question i'm always asking mm. myself who am i afraid of letting down and um I think that's that's why I know if I don't I can't not write. I know that about mm-hmm. myself, so I I just do it. Even if it feels like and and I think one sort of life hack I have is just to turn what you're doing into the thing that you know you have to do. So if I am working like my you know business admin work, I call it writing. And that's mm. how I hack my brain into now I'm writing, right? So like, yeah, I have to write acknowledgments to donors. I, I write poetry. I'm not writing, uh, hi, thanks for giving us a hundred dollars. Like I turn it into a writing project or like, that's great. you know, if I'm giving a uh, state of the union talk with my staff about like the world or whatever, you know, like I turn that into a yeah. speech and I write it. If I'm giving a board presentation, I think of it as like I'm on a stage and I'm and this is my soliloquy, right? Mm. And I I hack mm. each of those things, even if it's like, I mean, the farthest thing from that context is probably like working in a spreadsheet. But even there, I'm like, what's my narrative? <laughs> it's concrete poetry. <laughs> that's really and even I think that's a really gorgeous way of approaching that. I mean. Matter speaking, like you are a nonfiction voice actor at this point as a podcaster, right? So you're it's still theater. <laughs> this is absolutely theater. No, you're very right. right. You're very right. I mean, I I think I, and then I think of all the people who succeed at certain avenues, you know, and then where I get really jealous is for the person who actually can decide like I'm just going to be a hundred and ten percent at this one really specific manifestation of my work. I yeah. I continue to put my I I continue to pour water into multiple buckets just to make sure mm. I have multiple buckets not not really having the courage to put all of it into one so that that's my problem but um yeah I just that that's that's the sort of mental hack I really love that I think that's that's extremely valuable and something that a few of our because we have we have listeners who are aspiring voice actors aspiring writers who will reach out knowing that we both worked in voice Mm -hmm. on stage on film that i've served as like a screenplay consultant and i'll have people reach out being like i at what point can i say i'm a writer Mm -hmm. at what point can i say that i'm a poet and a consistent thing that people trip over is the sense that 
um, you're some type of artistic quantum particle mm -hmm. where you're only valid if you're observed. Otherwise, it's like your art might oh as well God. not exist. But you just, and I, I'm sorry, I feel like Nardwar that I'm whip, whipping out things you tweeted less than 12 hours ago, <laughs> but you, you talked about nuking your Tumblr account. Yeah. And I'm sorry, I'm at work and I'm like, what am I going to ask Anne? What are we going to talk about? <laughs> and <laughs> it's, it's what I did. Um, but um, talked about feeling almost like you were reinventing the letter. Yes. Uh, through, through personal writing that maybe you shared with a few close friends, but uh, maybe not at all as well. So, so. Feeling valid as an artist and a writer, do you have anything that you would share with like the, the, the young aspiring writers in the audience about how to relate with their own work, how to write for the sake of writing mm -hmm. or discovering themselves versus I need this to get published because, yeah. oh my God, if there's one thing that, you know, ruins young poets, it's the 40 rejection letters right. from getting, you know, <laughs> things, you know, just no, 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 no. So. I'm going to quote another person. A friend recently said something. Is, I don't think he realized how important it was for me to hear this. He's like, I think it's really important you learn to be comfortable playing by yourself. Mm. Isn't that funny? Like, it's just... It is insightful. It was, it was specific to I was just, like, playing drums in a studio. And he's like, I think, you know, you need to become comfortable with playing by yourself. And I was like, mm. oh, my God. But that's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, imagine... Um, actually imagine I mean the bigger challenge is what does it sound like if you are actually content with it not being recorded or not being document you know just what does that sound like um and mm. I think I'm not denying the need for attention and for an audience because that's something I I thrive on and oh, sure. you know and so this is really hard and maybe a contradiction but I think the the way to get to a place where you can actually successfully achieve an audience is to first become okay with not needing it, right? Like, you, it happens when you don't want it. Like, people say that all the time, right? Um, and I think that's something, like, where I'm approaching now, where some of the best, some of, some of my best writing, to be quite honest, are one-directional, unique pieces, like letters. The letters I write to my friends mm. and to you know, past lovers and whatnot. It's like, that's, that was, that was prime Anne. Um, yeah. So can you be okay with that? And I don't know what the equivalent would be for voice acting or other modes, you know, other disciplines, but um, um, like I had a friend recently share with me something I wrote her and it blew my mind. I mean, I, not to sound narcissistic, really? but I was like, I wrote that. I could not believe what I was saying. And she's like, this was on my refrigerator for the longest time because it was just like, wow. and again, I'm not to sound arrogant, but I, I did see it and think, okay, then that's, that's worth it. Oh my God. That's totally worth it. And I still get sad that I'm probably not going to become the next great American novelist. You know, I also have gotten rejection letters. It doesn't feel good. And you know, like the compromise for me, I think is just deciding it's okay to not, it's okay to not be cool with rejection. <laughs> yes, so, absolutely. You know, absolutely it is. Because yeah. like so many authors are like, you have to keep sending proposals. You have to keep trying. And I got 50 rejections before I was published. It's like, good for you. But you know what? Great. I cannot. Congratulations, Dobby. Uh, just whipping yeah. yourself. Just, <laughs> like. yeah. I don't have that. Whatever that, whatever that is, I don't have it. Like, 
you know, give me a captive audience. Give me, give me a really good friend. (laughs) Somebody who's going to be really cool about the thing I'm going to send them. For sure. And, And you just described one of the most common artistic experiences, which is, um, which is interpreting the slightest bit of like self-pride or confidence as arrogance. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is something where I'm curious about your, um, to, to, to share a little background on this. It happens a lot with theater and music, especially where if we were to, um, if you were at a restaurant and you're complimenting the chef on the meal, or you're giving thanks to your uh, financial advisor or an accountant for a job, well, then these are all things where like you express praise and the person will take the praise and be like, yes, I know I am worth my thing. And yet, especially going to an art school, there is just a sense of if you greet somebody after a, a play that they did, shake their hand and say like, wow, that was a great job. That was an amazing performance. Um, if their response is, if their response was, I know, right? I'm fucking great. I'm the fucking, I fucking rock that shit. There would be, there's oftentimes a little like almost string that pulls inside of you. It's like, mm-hmm, no, mm-hmm. that's not humble. That's, oh, that feels, that feels bad. And so the, the constant self-effacing um, thing that we need to do as artists of talking ourselves down to feel like our, our art is valid. You, you working with young artists, is this ever something that you run into of people being afraid to kind of value their work properly? I, I read something about narcissism and narcissistic personality disorder or borderline mm. personality disorder. And it was a really interesting take, which is um, young people are described as narcissistic. But when you look at when you look really closely at the studies as to why they're mm. described that way, it's because in surveys comparing like older people and older generations and younger generations, younger people, when asked what their self-regard is or what their how they feel about themselves. They say, okay, I feel okay about myself. I feel good about, I think I'm doing okay. That's, Uh that's the rubric of narcissism is I think I'm doing okay. That's the fucking rubric. Oh my God, you're so right. Like I, so the, the standard of narcissism, you know, falling below the threshold, it requires being like, it could be better. I could be doing more is, is supposedly, the standard and so narcissism is i think i'm fine (laughs) isn't that wild (sighs) so and and i'm you know i don't want to be quoted in any medical papers you should go look this up so i get it (laughs) but um that 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 data just blew my mind because i think you're totally right there's a little string in your heart that's like no don't no you should sit you be humble you know but yeah I, I, I'm also trying to learn to accept, like, maybe if I'm being paid a compliment and I agree, rather than to be like, yeah, I am good, I, I can just be like, I can describe what feeling good feels like. So instead of being like, yeah, yeah right, I just killed that. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> like if I, if I do something good or I write something well, I can just be like, yeah, my energy level is really high right now. Or like, mm. you know, um, I'm really giddy. Like, this is making me really giddy like that. And that feels a little bit more. That's a that's a compromise for me. Absolutely. And, and even though we weren't able to um, find that book specifically, something that I needed to make sure that we uh, touched on before we wrapped up is 
There are so many underserved books and artists out there. So if we're entering the eyeball zone, the Anne Ishii eyeball zone of put your eyeballs on this, support this, get 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 your finger not your fingers, ears, whatever, go go find this art. <laughs> um what what is it that you are reading, consuming, supporting that you need to let people know is out there right now? Oh, that's such a hard one. Um I okay, so for starters all of us need to continue to consume queer art. Um, mm. I think especially queer erotica always needs the support. And, and I don't, again, it suffers no pretenders. So, you know, I'm not asking you to read things that don't titillate you or don't speak to you, but um, that canon needs to be canonized and it won't be canonized if we aren't mm. <laughs> reading it. And then as far as like understanding how to translate, you know, passion into self-acceptance and well i mentioned alexander chi but like um the autobiography of a novel i think is his book that's a good one and um the gift by the author's name escapes me even though i've read the book so many times um that's a good one to sort of understand the power of creative contribution um mm -hmm. but as far as what's important i mean honestly like i still really believe i hope that in my life i'm able to just like bring out more iterations of work that have not had their proper respect or due. And like, it's mm. still astonishing to me that it took me to get gay manga on American radar. Right. Not, it, not single handedly. It was, you, it was Annie. No, it was, was Annie y'all. Like, Anne is a pioneer. <laughs> I, I mean, I didn't do it single handedly, but the fact that it took a me to do that is like, yeah. it is, it, that, that's very humbling. I'm like, wow, I cannot believe that we did this. Um, so, you know, I want more people to do that. And each time I'm presented with something new that shouldn't have been new to me, I'm like, damn, mm. damn, why didn't I know about this sooner y'all? Like, so yeah, yeah. like, I love that feeling, but also I hope more people make it happen. So it's less like, Oh, you know? And, um, of course now I'm also drawing a complete blank on examples of like overlooked, movements and art and literature but no, i i totally got you so so the two ways to take that emotion of um it took a me to do it are and they're both equally valid is the it took me an ishi brilliant effervescent goddess <laughs> dope writer amazing intellectual and scholar to do this and that is amazing and i have accomplished this and, and changed so many i mean like directly improved my life someone that you would never met or heard from or of at all until like two weeks ago uh so who was so directly benefited by that 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 work and that you know mm -hmm. burgeoning kind of desire to share those things and so thank you so much directly Anne. and then the other side of it which can be equally as valid is the it took me a a you know queer millennial trash folk a raccoon in a human suit <laughs> someone who has no idea what they're doing constantly stumbling through life someone where even now i look at myself in the mirror and i'm like what am i looking at <laughs> took me and even i was able to change the world for the better yeah. in this way even i was able to do yeah. this so for the people who are like just starting right now mm -hmm. if you were able to hand the cheat codes to the the young zoomers who are looking up from TikTok and they're looking up <laughs> and they're like oh gosh wait there's something i want to share with the mm -hmm. world 
if you could hand the, the cheat codes, the things that you wish you knew to people who wanted to get involved in, say, translating or producing, what's the advice you'd give for the, the, the young people with those aspirations? My, my immediate thought was don't be afraid to reach out to people. You'd be surprised. Like everybody's actually, I'm always surprised at the kindness of others and people always want to collaborate. But I say that as a pathological extrovert. <laughs> I'll talk to it. It's just Annie so Betty. insane to me that you're saying this because that was how I felt about when I got an email back from Anne Ishii. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, y'all, I got an email back from Anne Ishii. People are so good. I can't believe what happens if you reach out. Oh, and then that's the other side of it. Don't be afraid to respond. Like, I think, mm. you know, so often, I'm sure 20 years ago, 10 years ago, I was much more stuck up and been like, oh, whatever. I have an example. So <laughs> I went to Milan in 2008 on a job and it was a really weird trip. Um, I was a little bit on my own. I had a night by myself in Milan and I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to, this is my YOLO night. I'm going to go to the fanciest nice. restaurant I can afford by myself and just like get drunk and whatever. We'll see what happens. I'll try to look first. Like, I don't know. I was planning to burn a candle at both, both ends, and I I did. And I, I went to this restaurant, and there was this, like, really boisterous Italian group. Of course, they were Italian. <laughs> there was, like, a boisterous group of... Brotaku is the yeah. anti-Italian podcast. Put it on the map. Boom. Get out of here. France. I'm in Italy now. Um, <laughs> and they, they kind of saw me eating by myself, but, like, way too much food for one person. And they were like, what's going on? <laughs> and um, they were like, what are you, what are you eating? And I'm like... Like, um, it looks like risotto and branzino and a, a, I was trying to speak Italian, you know, and they were like, that's right. really funny. You're funny. And I was like, what are you guys <laughs> doing? And so they invited me to eat with them. Very long story short, I am now out on the town with these complete strangers until literally dawn. Like we are out right. all night. And it's like three, it's two men and a woman and then me. And, the, you know, there was a, anyway. One of the men was like desperately trying to fuck me, right? And so the whole night <laughs> is just like we're dancing, you know and I'm do. like, I, I want to stay out all night, but um, I, I just don't want to go through, like, I don't want to catch anything. <laughs> so I don't want him to go through me. I don't want. This. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> so I, I, so I sort of did everything else that I could, and I just had a fucking blast. When I got back, and people were like. I was telling the story, they were like, what? You weren't scared? Like, what? You, I mean, and mm. like, he was trying to fuck you? Like, what? And I was like, I would have been more upset if he didn't try to fuck me. <laughs> God damn it! <laughs> <You> <laughs> <know>? <laughs> like, if I did all of that and none of them wanted to do anything with me, I would have been like, what the, what's, what the fuck's going on here? <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, and so... I'm not, I'm not a libertine. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm really, really not, but like, you know, so I, you know, they're like, how you weren't scared of strangers. You just said yes. I'm like, always say yes. <laughs> mm. I mean, with reason, if you're, if you're a recovering drug addict, maybe say no, but <laughs> no, I, I'm, you're, you're hitting on something really important here, which I kind of butt up with as someone who is like, um, I, I I graduated from college two years ago. Mm. I'm 26, and in coming from there, I was coming in and through the gender studies program in like the era of uh, uh, consent and safe spaces oh, yeah. and things that all have like really important value. 
And yet there definitely was a kind of like through line of some of the folks I graduated with where I met some of the best poets and, and writers that I, I to this day have known in my life in school, people who now are unemployed because they would never even consider like raising their hand, yeah, yeah. you know, to share something in class, or they would never consider sending back, you know, a, a, a email to someone or putting a bunch of things out there like you did mm -hmm. um, to actually start the, the translation with Gengoro yeah. Um I think I just mispronounced that name. No, I, I didn't hear it. But I mean, that's the thing is, that's why I was pausing before saying all of this. I It's such a different age now. And yeah. I really don't know how to, I don't know how to, talk, I don't know how to speak to this age. I, it's really, really hard because I'm, one of my biggest learning curves here has been how to work around introversion and trauma and like, mm. you know, really, really deep, deep anxieties. And, um, yeah, you know, I'm a I'm a toucher, like not gross touch, but just like I. That's a great, you know, yeah, and I no, can't, totally, yeah. and that's and I'm ask my, you know, my staff will tell you I'm not inappropriate in that way, <laughs> not in that way, but um, right. I don't know. I don't know. I wish I knew. That's something I'm learning. I I wish I had like a. I just want to give everybody like a little boba tea who feels like they can't come out and raise their hand and say things and assure them that there's another way there are other ways actually i just realized i mean most people i talk to yeah i, I guess it's sort of just text or email and if you can't do that then find an advocate i don't know it's really hard i don't i don't know how to socialize without being ready to take it all <laughs> no and 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 you're you're exactly exhibiting some of the issues which is that like if we knowing that if we were to directly say like go out there uh uh take risks be uh be unabashedly you know out there and afraid people could correctly you know clap back on twitter talking about um even now i'm so crippled about mentioning examples yeah, for you know, cancellation, I'll give you but, one. so yeah i yeah. get this too and it, i realize that the, i'm speaking from a place of tremendous privilege tremendous yeah. privilege i walk into most space i walk into most spaces i you know what i mean like i don't ask for permission mm, and sure. it's sort of i'm here i totally recognize the privilege in that and i understand um the paralyzing fear of being somebody you know exposed to danger and abuse and with histories of trauma but here's the thing right. i've also been the victim of abuse and trauma actually pretty pretty shitty shit and i it's the the way i've also hacked that mentally is and and i'm i, I can't even describe it it's so awful and not to like outdo anybody but in my mind i try to tell myself it's that has happened and that's why i can't keep letting that happen like does that does that make sense like mm. i was in a really gnarly car accident and after that accident i was like well now i can drive any irresponsible unsafe car i want because i've been through the big accident interesting interesting so in my lifetime i want to make sure that i'm not more safe <laughs> i mm. might be stupid i just realized <laughs> like a smart person would be in a car accident and be like i want to wear my safety belt for the rest of my life but i'm like no, I, I had a concussion and broke my leg in two places, so I'm going to just ride motorcycles. Of, I'm going to live forever. Yeah. I'll drive whatever. Man. I've been like, through the big thing, you know? I don't yeah. know. I'm, 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 I think I might be stupid. Don't listen to me. <laughs> 
I think, well, so Anne can say that, but, you know, out of fear of narcissism, I will say, do listen to Anne, because there, 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 there comes a point where, especially for artists, when so much art comes from trauma and comes from pain and comes from being turned down, where at a certain point you need to ask yourself whether you would rather be protected or whether you would rather be resilient mm -hmm. and it's very hard because the, the deeper you get in the art the more you get a kind of all-consuming sense that this is really really deeply every, the world is really deeply fucked mm -hmm. up and it's very painful mm -hmm. and there's a lot of terrible things that can happen but taking those risks and putting yourself out there at a certain point if you're very disinterested in doing that then i think maybe that's why you have brought up so correctly the the all-consuming urge, the the possession, the thing that that makes you take all of those risks, mm -hmm. because maybe that is the thing that that gets you to that level. The thing of like, whatever, I'm gonna lay it all on the line to get there. Yeah. You know, even if it's scary, even if it's dangerous. Yeah. Really interesting. Yeah. Gosh. I mean, the fear is always gonna be there, and um, I think that's the other thing I talk about this a lot with artist friends is. Fear's the real enemy. I know that sounds so cheesy, but like that that's one thing artists hopefully can manage. And that's maybe you own the privilege of not having to actually be in act in, in um life threatening places, right? Like mm. so from the safety of your thoughts, ho hopefully they're safe thoughts. I mean and if your thoughts are dangerous then that's a that's another issue. Um you want to try to your your service to society is maybe to combat the fear Ooh, that's such a i think that's a beautiful sentiment and i think that actually caps off a lot of what we're trying to reach here today um, thinking about how you could best serve society in that way gosh man so much wisdom from you Anne. <laughs> uh you've been so generous with your time today Anne. And I, I, I want to make sure that I allow you to enjoy your weekend. But before we go, for people who want to support your work, whether that's uh, Substack or the initiative, where can we find you and how can people help support the work that you're doing day to day? Um, more important than what I'm doing for sure, because I'm I, I of means, I'm fine. But um, mm. you can follow me on social media if you want to hear more ridiculousness. And then that's at ill underscore iterate kind of everywhere. And then... Um, Asian Arts Initiative, please consider checking us out, coming to Philadelphia, you know, um, at me, <laughs> pretty, as you said, receptive. <laughs> so, absolutely, absolutely. Proof proof is right here. AsianArtsInitiative.org, Asian Arts Philly on social media. Just um, check us out. All right. Fantastic. And thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. And thank you so much for being so um, open with sharing and speaking on some pretty complicated topics you know touching on everything from learning french to the debauched tentacle pornography in men in black to to uh how to find your your spark and truest self as an artist i think that you've given so many so many um beautiful ideas out here and so i can't thank you enough thank you so much thank for coming you on, this is so much fun absolutely so here we go with the outro, gang. Thank you all so much for listening. If you like what you heard, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or review us on your favorite podcasting app. It really does make a difference and every review counts. We will make sure to give you a shout-out on the air to show our appreciation. Make sure you check us out on Twitter, uh, on YouTube, on Instagram, on OnlyFans coming up. Just check us out. We're working on it. <laughs> um, we got the mics. But with, yeah, we got, we got the... the, 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 the <laughs>
<laughs> oh god, <laughs> I love Anne Ishii. <laughs> all right. So with that said, I am Pax, and this is Brotaku's. See y'all next week. Bye, y'all.